0: Welcome to the Eskenazi Health Here For You podcast, where we go beyond the doctor's office and take a closer look at the programs that Eskenazi Health has to offer our patients and the communities we serve. My name is Brian Van Boklen with the Public Affairs team, and uh, today we have members from the Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center available here in in studio to talk about the programs and services that are available through Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. We have Lindsay Bland, who's the manager of Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center, and Lindsay Huff. Who is uh, the peer recovery, or one of the peer recovery specialists? And uh, they're going to be talking about some of the addiction services that are offered at Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health and how peer recovery plays a large role in someone's recovery. Okay, that scripted part is now done. I can get everything. So now we can actually have a conversation with you two. Uh, Hopefully, this is the hardest question that you have to deal with today. Background. Let's start with Lindsay Bland. We'll go manager down to peer recovery. Uh, just a little bit about your background, how long you've been with uh, Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health, or Eskenazi Health, all of that. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
1: sure. So I, I do know it's confusing with two Lindsays in the room, so we'll make that as easy as we can for you. Um, I have been doing mental health and substance use work for about 13 years now. Um, most of that has been in a community mental health center, which is what Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center is. Um, I love this work. I'm very passionate about you know serving Underserved populations. Um, My background is actually a master's in forensic psychology, so I've been very lucky to get the experiences that I've had and very, very blessed to get this job at Sandra Eskenazi. Um, I've been the addiction program manager now for just over a year and a half, so I've not been here very long. Um, Lots of people with a lot more tenure, but enjoying it and plan to be here a very long
0: time. Well, welcome. We're glad to have you here and hope you will stay here a long time. Uh, Lynn, Lynn Zay, We'll move on to, I want to, is, is, is it Lindsay, Lindsay, or is it both Lindsay? I want to make sure I, I don't, I don't want to offend anyone with my exaggerated pronunciation. So,
2: so it's Lindsay and Lindsay. Lindsay
0: and Lindsay. Okay, cool. All right. All right. So how about a little bit more Lindsay about, you know, your background, how long you've been with us and what you do as a peer recovery specialist?
2: Absolutely. My name is Lindsay Huff and I am a certified recovery specialist and a community health worker with substance abuse endorsement. Um, I have been with Sandreskin for just over a year and a half, almost two years. I started out at the Assessment and Intervention Center and I'm now with Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. Um, I love my job. The biggest thing for me is sitting down with people just like me, people in long-term recovery, because I am a person in long-term recovery from both mental health and addiction, and sitting down with other people and saying, hey, this is how I went through my recovery process. What can I do to help you go through yours? Um, I love what I do. I'm super passionate and I am so grateful to be a part of Sandra Eskenazi and making a difference in this population.
0: So, uh, real, real quick. So what goes into becoming a peer recovery specialist? What, in absolutely. addition to personal experience, obviously, but then I, I would think there's some training and certifications and stuff like that.
2: There absolutely is. So, um, to become a certified recovery specialist, you have to have a year of recovery, um, and a high school diploma. Um, I work with a lot of people working to help them get the high school diploma, um, and, uh, move towards getting certified. So year of recovery and high school diploma. Um, There are two certifications in the state of Indiana. There is community health worker certified recovery specialist and there is PACRC which is peer recovery coach. Um, The CHWCRS is a state certification so it's only in Indiana that you can use this. Um, The peer recovery coach certification is a nationwide one. Um, CHWCRS goes through Mental Health of America and CAPRC or the Recovery Coaching Certification goes through ICADA. For both of those, there it is just like I said, high school diploma, year of recovery. um, And the biggest thing is just you're somebody that has gone through this and has this lived experience. And so you're just sharing your own personal, you know, your own personal way of getting to recovery uh, to be able to help other people.
0: I'm jumping way off script on this one, but now I'm, I'm, I'm zeroing in on this because it because it's really it's really interesting to me. So, how does is the personal experiencing more for to offer credibility to your patients? How 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 is that important with establishing a relationship with your patients?
2: So, the biggest thing when working as a certified recovery specialist or a recovery coach is connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this all the time: the opposite of Addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. When you sit down with someone and you're like, hey, I know what you're going through because I've been through it too, there is something. You automatically have an in with that person because you share this experience and you just help that person build on it. And when I'm helping other people build on their recoveries, that's helping me build on my recovery. It is just amazing. It's a very valuable role, and I'm so glad that this is a part of the services that we provide.
0: So uh, as we as we talk about addiction, and, and so many people think when we say addiction, we go to drugs and alcohol, and that, but it's more than that. It's not just drugs and alcohol. What other sort of services, addiction services, do, do we offer at Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health?
1: I would say the other service that we would probably see the most of after substance use would be gambling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you can see that pretty frequently. Um, predominantly, though, it is substance use. So our, our main issue that we see right now is opiates and fentanyl all the time. That's kind of what's walking through the door. Um, we do our best to meet the need in the moment, uh, give access to care as quickly as we can, and then walk with that person through their recovery, especially with the help of, you know, Lindsay and the peers that we have on the team.
0: You just mentioned um, that you see outside of drugs and alcohol, it's gambling is number one. So when I was thinking about this and I actually, believe it or not, I scribbled notes down to like, (laughs) um, do you think there's a stigma about, I guess, non-drug addiction, you know, that people maybe don't realize it's an addiction or that's not a real addiction. So do you you see stuff like that? Yes,
1: absolutely. I would say there's stigma for all addictions. Mm -hmm. I'd say that for sure off the top. But then you're 100% right. There's a lot of things that people have in their lives that because it doesn't seem as harmful as maybe alcohol or um, heroin, uh, it's not looked at as seriously of an addiction as maybe it could be because maybe the mortality rate is lower or the risk is lower in the moment.
0: So how does how does recovery work what is someone who's going to go through what is someone going to go through um i mean we've all we've all seen on tv and then the dr drew shows and all that stuff but what what are the stages the steps like that people are concerned with what scares people about treatment can you walk us through some of these some of these pro- processes
1: so i think you know we hear a lot and i'll let lindsay speak to this as well cuz she's doing more of the direct care work people are usually scared about changing the habit like you get so used to having that substance in your life and you learned how to function with that then when you give it up you start to notice things like time more so you're maybe more bored or you you are noticing that like what do i do with I don't, I don't have any hobbies like I thought that I did. So we see that a lot um, for individuals who are maybe taking that step through our door and, tr- and trying to, to work through their recovery. Um, as far as what their treatment may look like, it's incredibly individualized. So what we do for one person who walks through the door may not be what we do for the next one. We're going to assess everyone. So that will be the same. But that assessment helps us decide treatment frequency and types of services, uh, groups, like anything that may be the package that works for that client. And then, of course, the client is actually the most important person in this treatment decision. They are the most important person on their treatment team because if we don't have their buy-in or they don't see the value in the treatment um, or maybe are not ready for it in that moment. It's it's difficult to move forward. So their opinion and what they're willing to do is is very important.
0: Uh, so is there a difference between addiction and compulsion, in the clinical sense, what's how, how do we become how do we become addicted to something as opposed to a, a, a compulsion?
1: <laughs> that is a great question, and I've been asked this before. And to clarify, I'm not a clinician, okay. so not not a licensed clinician. But I will say that if we could identify what caused people to get addicted. Oh man, yeah, we could probably <laughs> change the world, right? There is usually not one particular thing that that lends to somebody becoming addicted. We see individuals with trauma, significant trauma, so maybe they're trying to escape that pain and those thoughts, so they they start using a substance. We see people with injury who are prescribed opiates from a doctor and then could just never get off of them. So there's not necessarily a space like a specific thing that we could probably pinpoint. I mean, even Lindsay's own story is different than the stories that we hear of the individuals walking through our doors.
0: It's so interesting how, uh, like when you mentioned opioids and how kind of almost random and accidental it can happen. Like when you talk about when the opioid epidemic was going on and they were being prescribed by doctors, it's almost dumb luck that someone didn't get into a car accident that then would leave. You know, it's like that, it was that quick and that random how someone could be, could head down that path versus someone who couldn't and it's just it, it's it, it's really interesting it's personally it's something that fascin- it, it, it fascinates me um, Lindsay uh, peer recovery specialist so <laughs> um, uh, so how does how does someone work with a peer recovery specialist how does how does that process uh, go so intake and then they're they're sent to you do you specialize in a particular or how does your day-to-day work?
2: So like Lindsay said, it's very individualized. A lot of the things that we can work on are just mental health things like um, coping skills and goal setting and, um, you know, working through –
1: Like relapse prevention.
2: Relapse prevention, yes, yes, these types of things. Um, I think the biggest thing is – Sitting down with the client and just like asking them. I, I always, when I meet someone new, I wanna know what their history is. I wanna know what led up to them getting to Sandra Eskenazi because a lot of times, you know, there's, we all have internal and external motivators, right? So for a lot of people, probation could be um, a motivator for them to come to services. But then for others, it could be that they are ready to make some major changes in their life. And I provide the same care to whoever it is, regardless of the reasons that they came through the doors, because they got through the doors. So I sit down and I say, you know, what do you want? What do you want to work on? What can I help you with? Some of this stuff, sometimes someone, just needs to learn how to have fun, how to have like go out into the community and like use those resources, like going to the library. Sometimes it could be taking somebody bowling. And I know that seems like something trivial, like people don't think, but like in early recovery, going bowling is it's fun and it's exciting and it's something different. And I think for me in my own personal recovery, I got to a place where I had to do something different. What I was doing wasn't working. And so I very much am just like, all right, you know, you're you're driving this, you're driving the train. I'm just here to kind of support you as we go along the journey together.
0: How do you how do you balance the things with, you know, getting out and having fun? But avoiding those situations that might, you know, have a negative impact, because like you said mentioned going bowling. Well, people are out drinking at bowling alleys and all that. So, you know, how, how do you how do you ease that person's pain or let them know? See, it's you can do this. That's down there. You're down here. You know, How do you how do you get how do you help a person have fun again?
2: I do it with them. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm there to lead them, kind of guide them, figuring out whatever it is that they need. But everybody, like Lindsay said, everybody's individualized. So like I think the biggest thing is just sitting down like and asking like, what do you want? What do you need? How can I help you? Because like I said, they're the ones driving the train. I'm just here to like support them along the journey.
0: And then what's the difference, uh, if there is any, between – um, the services the peer recovery specialist, Robert and Sandra Eskenazi, between say, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, and then a sponsor and all of that—is there, or is this just a difference in word choice, essentially?
2: No. So, Twelve Steps is a definite Twelve Steps. Um, Twelve Step Recovery is it's a it's an option. Mm-hmm. See, recovery doesn't happen the same way for everyone. Um, Recovery happens via many pathways, okay? And so for some people, 12-step meetings is their thing. All right, that's cool. Come in, let's sit down, let's schedule some meetings, and I'll go with you to those meetings. You want to find a sponsor, let's sit down, let's kind of listen to the other people at the meeting talking, and then I'm going to encourage you to go speak with that person. If that's what they need, I am on board with that 100%. Nobody's recovery process is exactly the same. And that's like the biggest thing with a peer recovery coach is like, I have to look at the situation unbiased. Like I am, I am pro whatever healthy nav avenue is going to help you the most. Um, Another big thing that kind of goes along with that is, you know, being real with them. Like when there is situation that they're struggling with, or when there are behaviors that are risky behaviors, I'm going to tell them that. I'm going to say, hey, look, you know, I, I, I heard you say this, or I saw you kind of going in this direction. And I just want to bring it to your attention so I can support you. It's supporting them through the good and the bad.
0: Is uh, is, is addiction a medical diagnosis? Like, depression or the flu or anything like that or is like can someone come in I, again in my random mind of how am i going to ask these questions can someone come in thinking that they're an addict and not be an addict by the in the clinical sense? Or is it if you think you're an addict, then you're an addict and let's go in and, and get the treatment?
1: I mean, I, I would say I guess that could be a potential. We don't typically see people walking in thinking they are and they're not. Mm-hmm. It's usually maybe thinking they're not and they, they are struggling with addiction. And as far as your question about is it a disease or a, a diagnosis, 100% yes. If nobody hears anything else here that addiction is a disease – it is literally defined that way by the American Society of Addiction Medicine um, and should be treated as such. So we approach it like we would approach anything else like cancer. It is a long-term disease that we have to provide a lot of treatment for, um, and we individualize that treatment, and we work with them through that. But, yes, 100%, it is a disease, and it recovery is possible.
0: Is there a way to – rule it out when you're going through the things like I I I guess to get where I'm getting and and I don't want to I don't want to come off as I was making light of it because I'm absolutely not but the sense if you get people go in and like well I was on WebMD and it could be like uh it it could be a runny nose a sore throat but I could also have cancer that's going to kill and you're like you don't have cancer you know it's I mean is it can you rule things out or Yeah. It, it, so
1: our our assessment process is incredibly thorough. Um and how we diagnose people is incredibly mm-hmm. thorough. And then those are signed off on by medical doctors or a psychologist. They review those assessments and then, you know, give us feedback on that diagnosis. So absolutely, like there are different levels of addiction as well. We have mild, moderate, and severe depending on what diagnosis is used. So hundred percent somebody could walk in thinking maybe they're struggling with one thing and then by the end of the assessment realize, oh, it's actually this over here, and this might be secondary. Um, so yes, there are, there are different levels and there is a potential to rule out certain things.
0: Um, and then, uh, obviously with, with addiction, it's, it's more than just treating it. The, the primary point is treating the patient, but it's, there's all the factors, it's family, it's you know, support is building that. So how do you bring the families into that? How do you, uh, you know, maybe they might be the trigger. I mean, how do you, how do you help with all of that stuff? How, how do we... How do we bring families in?
2: So I think the biggest thing um, that – the biggest thing for me is that recovery is a lifestyle change, okay? And so it's not – I mean it's adjusting all areas of your life because when you're using, you are out doing the most. (laughs) You are. And so – your whole lifestyle has to change because you're you're out in the world and you're it's about getting it, using it, you know, and then getting more. And it affects all relationships. Um, for me personally, my family has been super, super supportive of my recovery process, but it also took a really, really long time for them to see that I was making changes. Um, it wasn't they weren't willing to see. They weren't really willing to hear my words anymore. They needed to see it through action. And I think a lot of families that have someone that's struggling with addiction also need to see – they need to see it through their actions, not just their words. Um Figuring out how – so I am always open to having family members come in and meet with um, the client and myself um, and supporting both of them in whatever way I can to help them have a healthy relationship. I think that this more so takes place within um, – with a clinician, with a therapist, someone that can really help them dig. So it's – when you're in recovery, it's about digging down to the root causes of why you use substances. Um sub substance use is um it's not a surface thing like it, you're for a lot of people you're using because it is like self-medicating, right? You're trying to feel better from something. And so when my clients get in with their clinicians, that's where they really get supported in exploring that. And so if they want their family member to come in and meet with the clinician, our clinicians are absolutely willing to do that as well. And I do want to follow up on one other thing that was said earlier. Um, The biggest, one of the biggest things about being a peer recovery coach is that I'm part of a team. It's not just me meeting with the client. It's a clinician meeting with it, care coordination, groups, peer support, all of us work together as a team. Um, And I think that that's really important to understand because, you know, clients are getting better in multiple areas and it really takes really wraparound services for us to help these people get to where they want to be.
0: Um. What are some of the signs of addiction or the symptoms of it? Um what do you look for to tell when something maybe is gone from they're having fun on a Saturday night to now there's a problem or you went to the casino a few times and now well if you want to find them they're probably at the casino. Like what what are those what are those things that people should look for to to realize that there's that someone maybe has lost control of what's going on.
1: Yeah, we say all the time, impacting daily functioning. So how is what is going on in their life impacting their daily functioning? Um, That's the first thing we look for. Um, As far as like uh, signs and symptoms, it could be a lot of different things and it could look different. Behavior change is probably the biggest thing that family members or friends start to notice. Maybe they're typically really outgoing and now they're very isolated. Uh, Maybe they're doing more risky things, making riskier choices or irritable um, it could be, as Lindsay mentioned earlier, doing anything and everything to obtain something. Whether that's they maybe they start stealing in order to you know have the funds to to purchase the substances. Um, so we, we kind of see it manifest in in a lot of different ways. Um, and like we've said many times, it's so different for every person. What what the signs and symptoms may have been for Lindsay may be different for me if I also struggled with substance use.
0: Yeah, how would someone self assess that? Because um, obviously you you don't want to. The hardest thing is being honest with yourself. Sometimes, like yeah, well, you know. But if you sit down and you write the the line, okay, addict, not addict, and then you start lining the like, how does how do how do you get someone to to I guess own the fact that they you know that they're an, an addict or addicted to something.
1: I'm actually going to let Lindsay Hoth answer okay. this one, if that's okay. <laughs>
2: oh my gosh, um, back up and ask me again. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what? How do you? Is your? Is you're doing a self-assessment to determine if you? It, you know, if you're an addict. Like, what are? How do you? How? What's important to help? How do you? How do you convince someone of that? Or if you're? If, if you're doing a self-assessment on yourself, and you're like, well, this and that, and then what do you need? Now I've lost how I'm going to ask this question. Okay, now I can
1: have <laughs> a really good answer. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it, yeah. <laughs> you when you said the word convinced, that's yeah. what jumped out okay. at me. Um, because I don't think you actually convince. Okay. Like I think it's probably incredibly challenging to convince somebody that they have a problem. Think about us and like other problems. Drink too much coffee, mm-hmm. eat too much stuff. You can't convince me at all that I probably do those things, right? Yeah. It's they have to um be willing to walk in that door for treatment and then work through the process with the treatment team to have that realization and you know there's people say all the time oh they have to hit rock bottom I don't believe that for a second I don't believe that it's that somebody has to hit rock bottom first who defines rock bottom I, I think ha- they just have to be willing to take the first step and then lean on the treatment team and lean on those supports that they've identified whether that's their natural family or family that they've chosen um, and and work through the process and work through their recovery
0: so I uh, in in I is I, I've often kind of I don't know if I've struggled with it probably have I I, I don't I don't know, um, you see people trading unhealthy addictions for healthy addictions is that is that kind of counterproductive? Like say someone who who is very who had a severe uh, chemical dependency on something and they're like you know what i I've, I've given up because I found fitness. But they're approaching fitness the same way they were approaching their chemical addiction. Is that... Is that good or is that or is that just as dangerous and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop in that situation?
2: So, um within Sandra Eskenazi we talk about harm reduction a lot, mm-hmm. right? So, this could be going from drinking a six-pack of beer every day to drinking three beers a day. Mm-hmm. That is still progress. That that is still progress. And so maybe somebody um no longer smokes marijuana, but they drink coffee. Mm-hmm. That is still progress. Harm reduction is I love harm reduction. It's what I go by because I believe that. So abstinence is always the goal, but it's not always feasible for everyone. And like I said earlier, peer, um, recovery happens via many pathways. And so helping somebody navigate kind of what's going, what you know, what are the goals, what are we working towards, and you know, harm reduction is huge. I, yep. I couldn't agree with okay. that. I, I would. I would say that that was the first word that popped in my
1: head harm reduction when you're talking about treating maybe one um, negative behavior for another yeah you can you can do anything too much mm-hmm. right in- including fitness um including coffee um, but we very much approach things from a progress perspective and a strength-based perspective. So if somebody is going to give up marijuana and then wants to work out every single day, great. Right. On. We can okay. we can work with that. And then if you know if it gets to the point that that becomes unhealthy for them, then that's another conversation clinically that we can work with them through. But a hundred percent harm reduction
0: approach. Um. And hopefully, 2023 is the last year we have to answer ask this question: How is COVID? Impacted what we have seen, and and I can't. I really can't. I really hope this is the last year we have to say the elephant in the room. How did COVID, you know, impact what you guys did? But how has COVID affected what you were seeing? I guess pre-COVID, during COVID, and then now, I think uh, more than just addiction, we're more willing to address our mental health issues in this. I guess post-COVID, whatever we want to call this thing right now. So how is how is the last three years? affected treatment, how you guys work with people, how you just operate the facility maybe even.
1: Yeah, I would say there's there's been some pros to um, the changes that COVID has brought to the nation and to the state, including things like telehealth and the access to that. So being able to provide services to individuals who can't get into the clinic, that has been a game changer for people in access. Um, I think another I mean I hate to say COVID was great because it wasn't but like if we're going to reframe it and talk about things that maybe Mm -hmm. helped us change it's definitely that and it's also um, just I think access to care overall you saw a lot more um, funding and opportunities to expand things to allow better access to care and then when I think about how is it potentially harmed us, isolation is the Mm -hmm. first thing that pops in my brain. People were so isolated and some still are Mm -hmm. super isolated from others. And we know isolation does not help you if you have trauma, anxiety, depression, substance use, because if you're alone that long, you're probably going to feel those things a lot more intensely. And I mean, there's some data out there that... We definitely saw an increase in like alcoholism, for instance, between 2020 and now. Um, we have seen an increase in overdoses in the, you know, Marion County specifically. So I, I think that there has definitely been some some cons to what we have seen COVID produce. Um, and then all we can do is just. Try to provide as much treatment as we can to as many people as we can.
0: It's it's interesting that you said about the isolation. I mean, I, I everyone went through that, even if people isolating in their house with their people, they're still like, I'm going to the other room. But it, it was it was weird because, uh, and fortunately, I, I haven't had to deal with it, but. There, When COVID for about six months into COVID, even I had to have a very inner monologue conversation of you need to set some parameters on how you're going to get yourself through this because it's not going to take much to slip in any one direction. And it was that setting up those ground rules for myself. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, and I don't I don't think like I, I can close, but it, it was one of those things where I had gone, you know, three or four days. I'm not a drinker, but I had gone three or four days where I had a drink every day. And I was like, I know it's just one, but this – this is not going to be sustainable. We need to have, you know, a heart to heart with myself on what was going. And so, yeah. So in that, and then it was that isolation because I could go and sneak away and no one knows what I'm doing. And uh, you know, but, um, so anyway, that's my story. Well, <laughs> I think actually
1: I appreciate that you brought that yeah. up because I think that's a, a good example too of somebody who had the capability to be mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm identifying a pattern, This could get out of hand. I need to make a change. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we work with a lot of people who don't have that ability. They they start that process, and then before they know it, it's it's too far Mm -hmm. or too far gone. And you know, that could be a bazillion things. Resiliency, protective factors. You know, maybe you had a different support network than than um, some of our clients do. So I just think it's a really good example that it could happen to anyone. Any one of us in this room could be a in this exact same situation with a substance use disorder. And I think that it's important for us to remember that just because we get to work in healthcare and we get to work for a really great place like Eskenazi, that it, it could happen to mm-hmm. one of us. Oh, too.
0: absolutely. Yeah. And well, one you know, of some of the things that people see in this field and you have to, process it somehow and it's you see some gnarly stuff <laughs> that you then have to take home and and deal with in that sense. Um and you mentioned yeah you know, and now I just I I lost my question. Um how can oh I got it back. When you talked about, you know, having the support group and being able to identify and all of those things, what do you say to someone who uh, who thinks that their friend or their loved one is suffering from addiction? but they don't really know what to do about it. You know, they, maybe, maybe the person is on the quote unquote, the edge or um, they don't, but they're afraid of what it could do with their friendship or any of that. So how, how how do you help people work through that without, I guess, blowing up the world in in a sense?
1: It's a very challenging place to be in. Um, And I would, bet that most of us in this room have probably been in a situation very similar to that where you had to weigh the consequences of saying something and potentially losing a loved one or saying nothing. Um, and I never want to minimize that. It's easy for us to sit and say, it's better just to say something because if you don't, what if they overdose and die? Um, I think it's more about helping the person work through that and and work on how they can come to that person out of a place of caring and love and how they can message it in a way. In the end, it's going to be the person with the substance use choice of how to proceed. Um, I don't want to speak for Lindsay. I'm sure many people came to her throughout her, her life with things, and I'm sure there, at moments she was ready to hear it, and at other moments she wasn't. Um, and I think that I, I, if we can speak up and help somebody and come alongside them in the long run, I think it will pay off. And I, But to guarantee in the short run that could not potentially damage a relationship, it's it's very hard to say.
0: I think, I guess, if the person's alive, oh well, you know, I did the right thing and, you know, they're alive. Um, how can we – how can someone listening to this uh, uh, podcast who might need services, how can they get in touch with Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health? Absolutely. And the peer recovery uh, team.
2: So um, the adult addictions team has walk-in assessments from um, 8 to noon, Monday through Friday. Um, and all the person has to do that we, we take walk-ins. Um, they don't even make, to need to make an appointment. If they want to make an appointment, they can. Um, they will sit down with a clinician for a, about an hour, um, and give a lot of information about themselves, but then leaving that initial intake, um, both the treatment team and the person will have a better idea of how to navigate their recovery process. Um, the access phone number is 317-880-8491. Um, and I'm sorry, I think the walk-in hours are 9 to noon. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So the biggest thing is just sitting down with that clinician and kind of, you know, really being open and honest about what they're going through and where they want to be. And, uh, you know, we will support them in, all of the different ways. Again, that's through therapy, um, care coordination, peer support, and groups. Um, and we, do, we
1: do walk-in hours because we understand that if somebody is picking up the phone and calling in mm-hmm. for an appointment and has to wait two or three days, oh, and it's
0: over. Yeah.
1: I mean, the odds of them actually showing up are, are slim because they're calling in the moment that they need us. Mm-hmm. So if we can just say, come in right now and we will see you, we that's what we want to do.
0: Yeah. I was going to add that even if it's a compulsion in that moment, there's your moment run, just run. You know, if you're like, I right now in five minutes, I'm not going to want to do it, but I want to do it right now. Just then go, go, We,
2: we, we very often talk about planting a seed. Um, I have opportunities where I get to go out, um, to different. So I, I go to a church and, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, um, a food pantry. Um, and, I, but I get to go and I get to sit down with the people that are just coming for a warm meal and tell them about all of the different services that we offer. And even if none of them come for an intake, I know that I've planted a seed within them that there is help out there if they want it. Um, and that's my biggest thing. You know, recovery is possible. Recovery is possible.
0: Uh, is there anything we have not hit on on this that we want to make sure we get on this uh, podcast episode? I, it's I, it's all really important. I think we could do a, a whole series of all the facets of addiction. But is there anything else for this particular episode we want to make sure we cover?
1: I mean, I think that you did a great job in, in covering most of the things, and I'm glad we got to share a little bit more about the peer role that that Lindsay Huff does. Um, and this is just a repeat, but. Really, if people can just believe that recovery is possible, that is we can't say it enough. Just take that first step and we will walk you through it.
0: We appreciate you guys coming in. Uh, Again, uh, you can get all this information at EskenaziHealth.edu. I want to thank Joe and Rachel, who unfortunately is not here today, but we want to thank her anyway for all her help setting this up. And we can get all of our podcast episodes at uh, SoundCloud account, Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on all the social media channels. And we'll be talking with you next time on the Eskenazi Health here for you podcast.